District of Conservation is sponsored by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening to the program. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Welcome to a special Thursday edition of the program. I have two final episodes of 2023 of topics I don't want to lose momentum on. Today's episode is largely going to focus on the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act and a sad development over my home, adopted home territory, fly fishing shop that announced that it's permanently closing its doors. And tomorrow we're going to talk about one of the biggest losers of 2023 with respect to conservation, and that is the wind industry onshore and offshore. So you don't want to miss it. But as for today, I'm going to briefly delve into these two topics the ESA at 50, a half century of the Endangered Species Act in effect. What are we to make of this, of this seminal law, its impact, its vast shortcomings, faulty implementation, why so few species have been successfully delisted and taken off the list? What explains that? In the next few minutes, I want to kind of give you a rough summary of what we can take away from this half century old law. And so at the time of its passage, it was a necessary tool. It's still a necessary tool today. But in the 1970s, there was a biodiversity crisis and there were really no laws governing this. So this seemed to be a reasonable prescription at the time. And when this was initially passed in Congress over 50 years ago, it got near unanimous support. People recognized the need for it. And according to a 2018 study from the Ohio State University, it actually showed that across partisan lines, as of a few years ago, the majority of Americans support the Endangered Species Act. They support the aims of it, namely 74% of conservatives, 77% of moderates, and 90% of liberals or progressives. And if you want to read the full study there, so it has near like 80% approval, give or take, in their most recent assessment of the law. So it's a popular law for the most part. People generally like the aims. However, this important conservation tool, while it is undoubtedly attributed to staving off extinction of 99% of listed species, it has a terrible job doing its other important role. The ultimate goal of the ESA, according to their own language under the Fish and Wildlife Service, is to recover species so they no longer need protection under the ESA. That means, despite that, only 3% or 57 of 1,732 listed domestic endangered or threatened species have been successfully recovered and delisted from the list. And according to the Property and Environment Research Center, PERC, they have a great report on this called Missing the Mark. The Fish and Wildlife Service is well behind their projected recovery goal of 300 species. They had set it a goal around the time of this law being implemented to, by this time, recover 300 species of those 1,700 plus listed species. So that seems like an abject failure. So what is the problem with this faulty implementation, faulty, let's say, process? Why haven't more species been delisted? We hear, of course, this administration and preservationist environmentalists attribute the shortcomings of the law to 
inadequate federal funding. But let me tell you and reassure you that money is not the issue, especially with most recently a budget for ESA was $331 million. Even Science Magazine, which is not a conservative outlet or a true conservationist outlet, said money is often poured into costly long shots or charismatic organisms. What is the true culprit of why we see these shortcomings? I would argue, and I've I've written this, and I'm taking a bit of this analysis from a piece I have out today at Independent Women's Forum. The real culprit explaining why we don't see more species recovered is because there's a lack of incentives with respect to landowner cooperation, and we see a lot of abuses of the law from radical litigious groups who have made a business out of suing and settle litigation to keep fully recovered species perpetually listed. So let me explain. Why do you have to involve private landowners? Why do you not want to anger them? Why do you want them to be in cooperation with the federal government? I don't know if you know this, but two-thirds of listed species under the ESA, over 66%, currently reside on private property. So you sure as heck want to have cooperation from landowners given this. And as I mentioned, PERC says that oftentimes endangered species listing in particular penalize landowners who already conserve habitat for imperiled critters. And oftentimes these landowners, despite their best efforts, are not rewarded for their contributions here, and instead the law punishes them, reducing land values and constricting permitted land uses. And that is why you often have to have cooperation from private stakeholders. And when you alienate people, don't give them incentives to care. This can be felt across different issues pertaining to environmental, climate, conservation issues. When you don't give people an incentive to participate, I'm not talking about subsidies or, you know, artificial enhancements like that. I'm talking about real incentives, a respect of private property rights. If that is not felt, why would a landowner want to cooperate? You have this shoot, shovel, and shut up mentality because the regulations are so onerous that oftentimes landowners, let's say if it's an apex predator like a grizzly bear or wolf, when these species are perpetually listed, even though they've met the threshold of recovery, their DPS, their individual segment population has met the threshold of recovery, they're still listed. However, because of these lawsuits, for instance, this is why you have this shoot, shovel up and shut up mentality oftentimes often portrayed in shows like Yellowstone occurring in some instances. I'm not saying this is a frequent occurrence, but this shoot, shovel and shut up mentality is a problem because there are onerous regulations in place. The ESA is not working as intended. Few of the provisions in in terms of achieving the goal of recovering species and removing it are not adhered to. They have the prevention of extinction, but they don't have the delisting component. And the Western Caucus Foundation recently released a report of the ESA at 50. It's a great long report. I've only been able to skim through the surface so far, but I've taken some kernels into my writings today, and I'm going to read and assess this a bit more going into the new year because the ESA, I believe, is going to become a more front and center issue. It always is. It's a perennial problem, but it really needs to be addressed. But they found that the federal law shortcomings are equivalent to hospitals that engage in medical malpractice. The report is quoted as saying, and it's written by Rob Gordon. He's done a lot on lands and now endangered species, of course, too. He says, in reality, the endangered species program and inclusion on the list may be likened to a hospital where patients check in but rarely check out. Of the relatively few that do, some are heralded as recovered. More often than not, the reality is the species could never have been listed. 
When such species are declared recovered, it could be likened to a doctor claiming to have cured a patient upon discovering the patient had been misdiagnosed as in poor health. Such patients would not be more cured than some of these species have recovered. Like doctors engaged in this malpractice, federal officials have repeatedly made claims over decades that are devoid of scientific integrity. And I think I mentioned this before, if not on the podcast, at least in my writings. In October, the Fish and Wildlife Service invoked the ESA to delist 26 species because they have deemed them officially extinct and unrecoverable. There's also the rule, I talked a little bit about this as well, about listing the lower 48 wolverine as a threatened species using kind of atypical you know, characteristics for determining a listing using, let's say, climate modeling and not population data. I think the wolverine could have qualified under traditional metrics, but it's funny that they talk about a very climate resilient species being you know, impacted in such a manner and that they had to use climate modeling, even though the animal can adapt and and move to different places. And that's why I've argued for a long time here on the show with, with the guests that we've brought on. I also want to point you to my past interview with David Welms of the National Wildlife Federation. He hosts the Your Mountain podcast, and he just was part of an effort to, I believe it was the Codex of the Endangered Species Act. He's one of the authors there. And we talked at length about why the law doesn't work a couple, a while ago, I would say earlier this year, maybe late last year, about what needs to happen, modernization that needs to occur to reduce conflicts, foster more cooperation, have more stakeholder input, and ultimately recover more species. If you want to chat more, I've cited all of this up at IWF today, but I want to be more optimistic and celebrate this law, but I'm leaning towards not being in such a celebratory mood because of just the abject failure from the government here, not incentivizing people, creating conflicts, creating arduous situations, and then obviously being hamstrung by lawsuits from their allies um, who make this a business, you know, to keep species perpetually listed. Then you see more human wildlife conflicts. We're not going to see this kind of separately, but adjacent to this with Colorado introducing wolves forcibly introducing wolves via ballot box initiative or ballot box biology, ESA modernization is going to definitely creep into the conversation with all these predator human conflicts that we are to expect from these kind of unscientific introductions by whim of people. You could see in the social media photos recently of the release that the scientists and the people there, except for maybe one person, were not really enthusiastic about the wolf's releases. The seated people in Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs were happy, but the the people who the wolves will impact the most, a lot of them are not really excited about this prospect. And wolves have already come into Colorado by different means through New Mexico, through Wyoming, So we see them kind of playing politics with endangered species. So it leaves a lot of people pessimistic about the future of this law and and seeing it tampered with in kind of nefarious and malicious ways. So I encourage you to read all the scholarship that I listed. Perk is a great resource. This new report from the Western Caucus Foundation. These might be convoluted topics. The ESA, let me tell you, I don't understand all facets of it myself because it's so long-winded and it's meant to be complex for the regular person to not understand, but I'm trying to educate myself every time I discuss this topic because you have to get to know it more. You can't be lazy about it. So it encourages and fosters you know, more interest in wanting to learn about it, even though it's so complicated and convoluted many times. But I'm here to tell you in the Cliff Notes version that I've presented 
It's a convoluted law. It shouldn't be made convoluted, but there are so many different aspects to it that are hindering this law from working as intended. Why we've seen so few species far from that 300 species recovery goal met and the dangers of not bringing the law into the modern age, what that will do, what that will hamper and why opportunists in the preservationist environmentalist world are going to dominate unless there's some course correction with the Equal Access to Justice Act so they're not making a pretty penny from misleading the public about a species true status. My recommendation is just to read some of the resources I've included here and don't feel bad if you don't understand everything. It's okay. Even those of us who deal with this policy directly don't understand all facets. There's so much to learn about it new challenges to it. So that is what I have to say on the ESA. It's okay to not know everything. And I'm going to conclude this episode on a really sad note because this has been a place I've visited several times in my journey into fly fishing. I've been fishing since I was little, but I've been doing fly fishing for the better part of maybe six, seven, maybe eight years, give or take. I think I did my first fly fishing trip in 2016. I took courses at the Orvis Arlington I think it was late 2015. Naturally, I was working in Clarendon and I decided to pick up fly fishing because the store was there and I had some friends who were partaking in the sport. I had networked with some people in fly fishing and they said, you will love this. And I think one of my good friends, Debbie Hansen, has been an encourager of fly fishing for me. She's like, you'll love it. Just try it. Be patient with it. I have no doubt you will do well, and I have confidence in you to learn it. And so she's been a big influence that some of my other fly angling friends have as well. So I got the encouragement to do it going off of the basis I had from bait and spin cast fishing I've done since I was really young, since I was eight, and more seriously by the time I was 12. And one person who was really critical in the formation of my interest in fly fishing was Duber Winters, who used to be the manager of the Orvis Arlington shop. And I think he had left that position, maybe had focused his efforts on other efforts. I know he's still involved in fly fishing, but he's no longer the manager. Hadn't been for several years. I got to know the more recent manager, Art, uh, who's a very fun guy. We've had some great conversations. He was here on the podcast and the, the folks there are just gems. They're lovely. Um, certainly the products are not cheap with anything. If you know fly fishing, fly fishing is not a very cheap sport, but it's not impossible to get good gear, supplies, accessories. They sometimes have discounts. And when I was starting, I was able to take advantage of some discounts when I uh, did, you know, Orvis 101. And then I did some of the classes, the most one, most defining class, I would say being the Orvis Trout School that was held at Rose River Farm, which is owned by Douglas Steer. So I had much like everyone else who took classes through the store, we had, you know, learned the basics through Orvis 101 courses. They had some like 201 courses. They offered trout schools, which is what I did in spring 2016. They offered many more types of opportunities to go floating in different local rivers and to go even out of state often. It was like a community. And then there was fly tying events, dinners, happy hours, beer tie is what the event is called, uh, hosted with some of the local conservation fly angling organizations. So there was like an ecosystem buffered by the Orvis store there. And it's a really cool community if you get involved here in the DC area. And I learned to fly fish because of the store. And when I read that the store is closing literally within the next few weeks, although they made the announcement more prominently displayed. So I got an email 
what is today? Today is the 27th, as I'm recording this ahead of time for you all to listen on the 29th. And I had seen the announcement before that they are closing. Now it's reality, according to the announcement. And I'll defer to you to read to the announcement. But from what I've heard, the rent in Arlington, specifically the Clarendon neighborhood, is extremely astronomical. I think a friend of mine told me that rent can average about $30,000 to $40,000 a month. That's ludicrous. I have never heard of such a bizarre you know, monthly rate for commercial businesses of that scale, it, like a little shop, like an Orva shop. So I believe that's what they were alluding to in their announcement. If you read through the official announcement that they can't afford the rent, I don't blame them. A lot of people aren't able to afford rent, commercial, residential, or otherwise in these days. Maybe it's a sign of you know economic times more so than a failure on Orvis's part. I don't think it's a it's a failure on them. It's just the really challenging times economically, and just how the DC bubble creates these kind of unsavory conditions. So I really hope, and I expressed this on the Instagram post making this official, that I lamented obviously the closure of the store and recounted good memories. But I hope that they move it to somewhere cheaper, still in these immediate DC area suburbs. It's so hard to find shops. I mean, I could drive to Woodbridge to the Orvis there. That's probably the, the closest one now to me because Tyson's Corner is a bit of a hike, as is the Leesburg location. Like I said, I'm fine with traveling if I need to, to get Orvis needs or shop online. But this was part of like the wider DC area fly fishing community. And, and there's other shops in Arlington. There's one more as well. Um, but this was kind of like an incubator that and glue that brought people together who liked fly fishing, newbies people who were maybe into other fishing styles. And I'm really sad to see the store go. It's a really sad indictment, like I said, economically, kind of socially here in the DC area. And I really do hope that they have a new location, maybe somewhere in Alexandria. I'm hoping maybe they could bring a shop back to Old Town Alexandria. There used to be a fly shop there, from what I heard prior to my living here in the DC area, but somewhere you know, reasonably priced where they can afford rent maybe a strip mall or something. Perhaps it's just not good or tenable to be in Arlington anymore. But there are plenty of other places, even with the crazy real estate market here, that I think an Arlington Orvis store could go to, maybe somewhere a little more inland, but still within Arlington or Alexandria city limits, because it would be a travesty if we don't have a shop here. So I hope they don't shutter altogether. Maybe they just find a new location. But uh, to Art and everyone who works at the Arlington store, thank you guys so much for, and in previous employees and in managers, thank you so much for bringing fly fishing into the forefront and into reach for so many, myself included. I wouldn't be doing it without you all. And I'm very sad for you all. And I hope you find some solution to this and can still deliver on quality products, quality classes, and fostering community here. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people, and I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners, and we have just hit 1,000 followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.